Thank you, Joe, for reading. And thank you also, Ella and Sammy, for helping out with our remembrance a moment ago. One hundred years ago yesterday, on November 5th, 1922, a cable was sent from the kingdom of Egypt up to the UK. At last, have made wonderful discovery in valley. A magnificent tomb with seals intact recovered the same for your arrival. Congratulations. The cable was sent by a man named Howard Carter to his financial benefactor, the British Earl of Carnarvon, who immediately himself arranged travel plans to go to Egypt. Exactly three weeks later, with the Earl standing behind him, Carter returned to the tomb and opened the door just a crack, just enough to see. And with the help of a fancy piece of technology called a flashlight, he looked in. Can you see anything? The Earl asked. Yes, Carter said, wonderful thing. Looming out of the darkness of the chamber, Carter later wrote, were two ebony-black statues of a king with gold staffs, kilts, and sandals, gilded couches with the heads of strange beasts, exquisitely painted ornamental caskets, dried flowers, alabaster vases, strange black shrines adorned with a gilded monster snake. White chess, finely carved chairs, a golden throne, a heap of curious white egg-shaped boxes, stools of all shapes and designs, and a scramble of overturned chariot parts, glinting with gold. And that was just the beginning. It took almost two years for Carter and his team to make their way through all of the rooms in the tomb, cataloging and preserving all of the artifacts that had been kept there until they were finally able to approach the great sarcophagus itself, lift open the lid, and come face to face with the boy pharaoh, Tutankhamun. The discovery of King Tut's tomb a hundred years ago this month marked a turning point in archaeology. It was arguably the greatest archaeological discovery of its age and since then has only been rivaled by the extraordinary work of Nicolas Cage and his blockbuster hit, National Treasure. More to the point, however... The elaborateness of King Tut's burial, the care that was taken with his body, the exquisiteness of his tomb, the quantity and even the quality of the artifacts that were sent along with him to his eternal reward. 
Those things also illustrate the concern that the ancient Egyptians had about the afterlife. Particularly when it came to those whom they cherished and who they wanted to continue loving and caring for, even in their loss. Such loving care did not stop with them, of course. Several years ago, a Vatican reporter misheard a conversation between the Pope and a young tourist who was telling him about her dog. And suddenly the story spread like wildfire. Pope says all dogs go to heaven. And while the journalist ended up having to retract the story several days later, the fact that it spread so widely, so quickly, shows just how many questions folks like us still have today about what happens at death and what life on the other side just might look like. We see similar questions in our Luke text this morning. Jesus is teaching in the temple when suddenly a group of Sadducees approach him. Rabbi, they say, you know how Moses taught us that if a man dies childless, then it's his brother's responsibility to take in his widow and give her children who will care for her in her old age. Well, let's just say for argument's sake that that happens multiple times within the same family. Seven times let's say. Seven weddings, seven grooms. Now, when the eight of them get to heaven, whose wife will this woman actually be? If it sounds like a a tricky question, take heart. It's supposed to. The Sadducees, as Luke notes, didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So what they are really trying to do here is trip Jesus up, ask a question that will flummox him, win some points for themselves in the eyes of all the crowds who were gathered there in the temple court. But Jesus, of course... Jesus is not so easily flummoxed. He sees what they are up to, and instead of getting caught in the weeds of their hypothetical situation, he goes straight at the real dispute between them, the question of resurrection itself. Moses himself showed, Jesus says to them, that the dead are raised in the story about the bush where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the Lord is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, to him, all of them are alive. This, of course, stumps the Sadducees. Luke tells us that they asked him no more questions after that. And yet, along the way to answering their question, he says something that might raise some questions for us. Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. 
Jesus says. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age, those who are worthy of the resurrection of the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. For years, this was one of those verses in the Bible that I simply could not understand. What could he possibly mean that there is no marriage in heaven? Shelve for a second the gotcha-style question from the Sadducees about the woman who gets widowed seven times. What about everybody else's marriage? What about the rest of us? Our loves, our lives together, the histories we've made, the stories, the ties that bind us. What about the covenants that we have made? Covenants, Scripture tells us time and time again, that are grounded in the never-ending ironclad covenant between God and God's people. What about those? What could it even mean for those to be undone? And what, I have to ask on this day of all days, What about those of us who are here this morning grieving the absence of a spouse? Looking forward to a day of glorious reunion, listening this morning for a word of promise and hope and love that will help them hold on to their faith. Hold on to the good news, to the the hope of the kingdom as they live out the rest of their lives here on earth. I said a moment ago that this passage used to be one that I had a really hard time with. What changed for me, and other people can approach this passage in other ways, but this is what changed for me. What changed for me was one day I was reading something by St. Augustine. There's a book of his on how to read scripture. Augustine's one of the greatest thinkers, scripture readers in the history of the church. He loved his Bible. And so learning to love it just like him would do all of us some good. Anyway. Augustine is going on about the importance of Scripture in the life of the Christian, and then all of a sudden, right in the middle of his argument, he makes the claim that in heaven, Scripture will not exist. It simply will not be there. All Scripture will be taken away from us. He says at one point. And can you imagine it? No more Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I I shall not want. No more hymn to love in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is not boastful or envious or rude. No more John 3, 16 and 17, 
as Courtney reminded us of a moment ago. More to the point, however, Augustine says that Scripture will not exist in the kingdom because once we are there, we will no longer need it. Why would we need the testimonies of the Gospels, he asks in effect, when we will be face to face with our Lord? Why will we need to be able to read the stories of Abraham or Isaac or Moses or any of the rest of them when we can hear those stories firsthand? It's an extraordinary argument, and it's singular. I've never come across it in anything else I've read or that I've heard, and yet there's something fitting about it. I think. Something beautiful, almost. And it it hit me as I thought about it, that that insight about Scripture just might help me understand what Jesus says here about marriage. And that is because, in both instances... The focus of the argument isn't on the thing that undergoes a shift in the kingdom, holy scripture, holy matrimony. Instead, the focus is on the kingdom itself. On how it's not exactly like the lives that we know here on earth. How it's different, better, more perfect, perfectly perfect, to be precise. How our relationship with God will be perfect and how our relationships with all of God's children will be perfect as well, as perfect as they were intended to be all the way back in Eden. And because of that, things that you and I need to guide our lives and our relationships here on this side of Jordan may not be needed quite so much over there on the other. Thus, brothers and sisters, if there really is no marriage in the kingdom, as Jesus seems to indicate here in Luke, it won't be because those of us who are married here will suddenly love our spouses any less once we're there. If anything, we will be able to love them all the more, to love them perfectly as we finally see them lit up in the glorious light of God. As we finally see them as God sees them. As we know them as God knows them and love them as God loves them. And as we ourselves are finally seen and known and loved just as perfectly. So if this is the case, then it cannot be because our ties to them are somehow lessened. Because in reality, they will almost certainly be made ever stronger. Thus, It would have to be because we will be able to love 
each and every one of God's other children just as perfectly as we want to love our beloveds here on earth. So that as we gather around the throne with all of them, face to face with our loved ones here on earth and face to face with our newly loved ones whom we will meet in the kingdom, we will all be there together, gathered in perfect community and knit together in perfect love. Thanks be to God. Amen.